0: Well, uh, we're continuing in Luke uh, 14, and I hope uh, our time in the Word is a time that you look forward to, and um, it's a time when we hopefully enter into uh, the story of the gospel, the story of the life of Jesus, and uh, it's my desire, my earnest desire, desire of my heart, that for those of us who have known the story of the gospel and maybe have been Christians for all of our lives... Um, that we hear something in a way maybe we've never heard before and we're still able to learn things. And even when we hear things that we've heard before, it renews our mind in the Word of God and we're refreshed in our faith and revived in our faith. And so things that maybe we thought we knew before or we have known, we're reminded of. And it's good to remind ourselves um, of things that God promises us, that God tells us things in the Word Um, In 1936, Dale Carnegie wrote um, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Who's heard of that book? Well, I don't know if everyone here who's heard of the book has read the book, but the book is so well distilled universally in our culture that people in leadership and corporations um, and just all around tend to the principles of the book are just kind of universally distilled in our culture among a lot of people. And some of the principles of the book were like, um, you know, when you meet somebody, ask them a bunch of questions, you know, make them feel like you care about their life and their story. And it's actually really good advice. It's not a bad book, it's a good book. It's a good book to read. And part of the book about winning friends and influencing people is getting to know people and, and hearing their story and, um, um, You know, uh, showing that you care about them and uh, listening, doing more listening than talking. And uh, in the process, um, people will like you. And when you do say things, you say things that are, you know, things that help build the relationship and maybe even things that they want to hear, Um, especially if you have an agenda, right? You want to win people. You want to win friends. You want to influence people. Now, I don't know if there was a first century equivalent of how to win friends and influence people, but as we've been moving through the book of Luke, it appears that Jesus didn't read that. <laughs> Whatever the first century equivalent was of how to win friends and influence people, Jesus didn't read that book because he often said things that just put people off. He said things that were bizarre at times. He said things that were downright offensive. I mean, even the command to take and eat of my body and drink of my blood is nuts, even if you were living in the first century. And so um, if Jesus was a politician and running for political office, well, then he probably should have more carefully chosen his words. He could have benefited from reading uh, a book like that, you know, softer, gentler, more optimistic words, you know. He, he could have and should have talked a lot more about what people wanted to hear. You know, um, we're making Palestine great again, you know. Um, but if instead of a politician, we think of Jesus like the leader of an expedition who is forging a way through, high, through a high and dangerous mountain pass to bring urgent medical aid to villagers that are, you know, cut off from the rest of the world. And the reason I talk about that is because if we enter into this text we're about to read this morning in Luke 14, uh, where Jesus talks about the cost of discipleship and about being willing to pay the high cost of discipleship or else we can't follow him, um, it helps us to grab a hold of his words better. You think if Jesus is simply trying to make people like him, he didn't do a very good job of it, but if he is like a leader uh, who's going to lead an expedition through a high, dangerous mountain pass to bring urgent medical aid to people cut off from the rest of the world, and Jesus is saying things like, you'll have to leave that pack behind. You're not going to be able to carry it as we climb through the steep, you know, through the steep mountains. And some of you should write a will because some of us may not be coming back. And when we take Jesus in that sense, we can understand his words better in Luke 14, starting in verse 25. Let's read it together. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and his wife and his children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to mock him. This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not first sit down And deliberate whether he's able, with 10,000, to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no use... Either for the soil or for the manure pile, it is thrown away. He who has ears, let him hear. Let's pray. Father, now we pray for the illumination of the Holy Spirit to guide us as we explore what it means to count and consider the cost of discipleship. Help us to have ears to hear and to hear this rightly, to hear your words rightly, and to understand your call and admonition to those of us would-be followers of Jesus in this way. We thank you now in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we read through the passage, one of the first things we realize is that there is this call to renounce all that holds us back from following the Messiah. A call for us to renounce anything that holds us back from following after Jesus. And we're struck with this language, you may have been struck with it as you read it, of hating, this disturbing idea that Jesus uses, the language of hating, hating your parents and hating your family and your brothers and your sisters and your wife and your kids. And on the surface, it seems like the Bible is majorly contradicting itself, right? You can easily see how someone would say, look, the Bible, what a joke. Everywhere else Jesus commands you to love, right? One of the command sixth commandments is to lo- honor your mother and father. How are you gonna do that if you hate them? Right? Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, implying certainly you love yourself. But Jesus is saying here, you have to hate even your own life if you're gonna be, a, be, be my disciple. You know, how do we make sense of those things, right? Love on one hand, value of the family, honoring your elders, honoring your parents, loving your neighbors yourself, right? commandment to love this is the second greatest commandment besides loving God, and Jesus here is using this language, which seems unequivocal, to hate your parents and your family, to hate your siblings and your children, right? And that that's, seems like a contradiction. Well, one of the things we have to do is look, look at the language of the Bible, and we know that the Bible, the New Testament, is written in Greek, and the word in Greek for hate is really unambiguous, uh, it means hate. Hate in the sense that we think of hate in the New Testament, in Greek, the Greek word for hate. Um, and it's the kind of hate that we're all familiar with. You despise something. You, it repels you. And now I hate green peas. There is nothing ambiguous about my hatred for green peas. If Maribel makes a dish and she's a wonderful cook and she accidentally put green peas in there, I tend not to touch it. I hate green peas. There's, there's nothing about it that I like, Okay. But Jesus uh, did not speak Greek. Who knows what language Jesus spoke? He spoke Aramaic, which was a dialect of Hebrew. So he spoke Hebrew, but a dialect he spoke in the first century was called Aramaic. We call it Aramaic. And the word hate in Hebrew has several meanings. It has several applications. And um, one of those meanings meanings is... um, if we think about the word hate, it can also mean, besides the popular sense of hatred, it can mean unloved. And we think about this um, when uh, we think of um, uh, Jacob and um, his wife, his wives, um, Leah and Rachel, right? Um, in the old days, men would marry multiple wives, and maybe one of them they loved more than the other. And so some wives would become jealous of the wife that the husband really loved. Uh, The Hebrew word there for hate is sane. It, it, It literally means hate, but the translators in Genesis have wisely translated it as unloved. Genesis 29, 31, when the Lord saw that Leah was unloved by Jacob, he opened her womb, but Rachel, whom he loved, was barren, and Leah conceived and bore a son, And she named him Reuben, for she said, Behold, the Lord has looked on my affliction. Surely now my husband will love me. Or you could translate it as, Surely now that I've become pregnant, he'll love me more. Right? Um, And there's another way, uh, a third way, to use the word hate in the Hebrew sense. And this is the sense in which in Hebrew, uh, the word hate is a Semitic expression for loved less. So there's hate in the pure sense of the word hate. There is unloved. And then there is this idea of being loved less, right? When a child is being disciplined by mom and dad, you know, at a young age, they'll say, you know, mom and dad hate me, right? You've seen kids do that. Maybe you did it when you were a kid, right? And it's this idea that a kid, when they're being punished or disciplined, they feel loved less. And so their reaction is to also use hyperbole and say, you hate me because they don't like the sense of discipline. In their heart, they know mom and dad love them, but they feel loved less because of the discipline. So hating in this sense, in this passage of Scripture here in Luke, is a Semitic expression for loving less. So what Jesus is saying is, if you don't love your father and mother and brother, sister, spouse, children, and yourself less than me, you cannot be my disciple. And it's a call to renounce all the ties that hold us back from following the Messiah. Jesus is saying, if you don't love these less than me, well, you can't follow me. You can't be my disciple. You'll try to follow me, but you won't be able to. And so the question is, you know, should we literally hate our family? Of course, the answer is no. Should we love Jesus more than these? The answer is yes. That's the point that Jesus is getting at as he's teaching the crowds about what it means to be a disciple. Now, what that means for us is that there are things in our lives that we may have to consider whether we love them more than Jesus, right? Are we really disciples? What are the things in our life that capture and captivate our attention and our heart? And do any of those things prevent us from following Jesus? Do any of those loves... Interfere with our love for God in Christ. Those are questions we all have to ask ourselves. And right now, maybe you're thinking of some things. Hmm. I wonder what some of those things might be. We're recalled. We're, excuse me. We're called to renounce all the ties that hold us back from following the Messiah. But secondly, we're also called to consider the cost of following the Messiah. And so Jesus constructs these two parables: a landowner pondering the construction of a fortification, and a king contemplating war. And in 20, verse 28, he says, for which of you desiring to build a tower doesn't first sit down to calculate the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, he's laid a foundation. After he's laid the foundation, he's not able to finish it. And everyone who sees it mocks him, says, this man began to build but was not able to finish. In the past few years, there's has been this massive home on Clayton. I mean, huge. It's one of the biggest houses I've seen here in West County. And it's been wrapped in kind of like a green weather wrapping. And when you drive it, I mean, it's just, it's, it's huge. It's massive. But it's been sitting like that. It was sitting like that for about three years. And the first thing I thought when I drove by it is, somebody ran out of money. I mean, it has to be what it is, right? Because if you didn't, you'd at least build the thing and try to sell it if if the initial buyers backed out. But somebody started this project, this massive home on Clayton, and couldn't finish it. Now, recently I drove by and it looks like it's almost done now or, or, you know, something happened. Maybe they had to save up some more money. But for about three years, it was a monument to shame. It was. It was kind of like a monument to their shame. I mean, right? They started this massive project and they weren't able to finish it. You know, I mean, the neighbors were probably saying, you know, that serves you right for trying to build a house that big. Massive home, wasn't able to finish it. And this second parable Jesus gives, what king goes out to, you know, declare war against another king, and then he realizes that even though he's got 10,000 troops, that this other king he's fighting against, this other force has 20,000 troops and realizes this ain't good. This is not going to go well and has to sue for terms of peace. You know, time out, time out. I give up. I was just kidding. I don't really want to fight, right? And that's also um, uh, a means to to be shamed, right? Kind of something that's embarrassing. And the whole idea is about counting the cost. And now both of these parables would have had some real resonance with people in Jesus' day. Because Herod had just finished a 46-year beautification Um, refurbishing of the temple, and it took 46 years because often the project was stalled out because of finances, right? He ran into financial difficulties. And the other thing is that during Jesus' time, there were all these Jewish zealots who hated the Romans. They were always itching for a fight with Rome, but you know the story of Rome. Rome outnumbered any military force Israel might have had by 10 or 100 Rome was this massive empire. And so these two illustrations, these two two parables that Jesus uses, would have had some real resonance with the people in Jesus' time hearing it. And the point Jesus was making would not have been lost on his audience, and it shouldn't be lost on us either. If you're going to follow Jesus, you need to know the cost of discipleship and be willing to pay it. That's what we need. That's what the church is probably lacking in our day. There are not enough people who understand the cost of discipleship and are willing to pay it. And This is exactly the point that Jesus is getting at. If you're going to be a disciple, you have to know the cost and be willing to pay it, or you're not going to last. You're going to be like the person who built this tower, couldn't finish it, or tried to go to war and was outnumbered. You're going to be like that person who did those two things because they didn't count the cost. Now, here's the point. The essence of being a disciple of Christ is this. Unreserved commitment to him and an unreserved commitment to Jesus involves holding loosely the material things of this world. That's the previous section about hating mother, father, and all those things, right? So counting the cost of following Jesus means holding the things of this world loosely. Loving the things of this world less than we love Jesus. Whether it's property or wealth or possessions or status or reputation, all of those things have to be held loosely if we're going to be able to follow Jesus wherever he goes. And sometimes the road of discipleship takes us on dangerous into dangerous places it takes us into places that are difficult to go right discipleship what are some of the costs of discipleship well discipleship is painful it can be painful being a christian god tries us he allows trials and tribulations to arise in our lives and those things hurt suffering hurts you know, god is mysterious We don't always know the way God is moving or working in our lives and that alone is painful because there's silence at times. At least if you're on a path with an expedition leader, he's always saying, you know, six more miles, 3,000 feet more elevation before we pull up to our second camp. But sometimes when you're following God, it's this mystery of not knowing. What's around the next bend? How much harder? How much longer? Will I suffer, God? How much longer will you be silent. How much more pain, God, do you think I can take? Because I feel like I'm at the breaking point right now. These are all things that try us in our discipleship. These are costs that we pay. I don't want us to be confused for a moment and think uh, for a second that we're earning salvation, right? This is two different topics there. Salvation is a free gift from God in Jesus, But the idea of discipleship, which is this ongoing life and journey with Jesus, Jesus wants us to to know what we're in for. Now, a few months back when we jumped back into Luke, we said that from from chapters 9 to 19, it's the journey narrative. Jesus is traveling on the road to Jerusalem, and he knows what's waiting for him when he gets there. And so the people who are with Jesus traveling, this is the context of this idea of following Jesus as a disciple, is that they're going to have to endure the same hardships that he endures, right? People say, oh, I'll follow you to the ends of the earth. And Jesus says, no, no you won't. We see it in the different parables, right? The rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he says, "I've kept the commandments from my youth. I've done all these things. What else do I have to do?" Interestingly, in that, in that parable, Jesus says, "Well, tell me how you read the law. Right? I don't know. You tell me. You know." And he says, "I've kept the commandments." And Jesus said, "Well, well. Here's one thing else. Since we're going to be traveling on the road to Jerusalem, just sell everything you have and just you know give it away. Bye bye. Bye bye, rich young ruler." Because some costs we're not willing to pay. Some things we're not willing to part with. Some things we love more than Jesus. That's that's where this message hits us square between the eyes. There's some things we love more than we love Jesus. And he says this statement in verse 33, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Any one of you who is not willing to bid farewell—that's what the literal word in the Greek is translated as—bid farewell. Any one of you who is not willing to say bye bye to anything you have is not, cannot be my disciple. You have to be willing to renounce all that you have. And what are the, what are some of the things that um, we have to be willing to part with at least? Well, our time, right? Our time is precious to us. We want our free time to ourselves. But serving God and his kingdom, following Christ, certainly being involved in a church requires an investment of time, giving up our time, giving away, parting with our time, bidding farewell to our own person, some of our own personal time, right? Our talents and some of our resources, that includes our money. Some of those things maybe we would like to hoard to ourselves, but we give, right? We, we say we, we give those things up, even though maybe some of us struggle with loving that, right? loving all of our money, or whatever it may be. For each of us, it's different. But he says, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Joel Green, in his commentary on Luke, he makes this great statement. He says, a characteristic feature of discipleship is putting aside all competing securities in order that they might, disciples, refashion their lives according to the kingdom of God, putting aside all competing securities. The whole idea of discipleship is what you trust in. That's ultimately kind of the fulcrum point of this passage. What are you ultimately trusting in? It's interesting that we call investments securities, right? In retirement and investments, they call them securities, and it's this idea that your soul and your heart can you know, take refuge and comfort and trust in those things. And Jesus is saying, you have to be willing to part and put aside those competing securities and find your security in me alone. That's what Jesus is saying. And we've, seen the, we've seen the results of the disastrous results at times of people who all of their trust and hope are in those other things. And when those other things come crashing down, whether it's family or a marriage or finances or how good your kids are or whatever it is, right, those things can threaten to unravel us. There is no guarantee in this world, certainly as a sinner, that any of those things are gonna go well from you, and there's not even a guarantee as a Christian that all of those things are going to go perfectly either. Sometimes Christians suffer the loss of those things. This had to be in Paul's mind when he said that I consider, you know, I count all things as loss to me. For the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, all things that were gain, all competing securities, my religious pride, my education, my... All of those things, my status as a Pharisee, Paul says, I count all that stuff as loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. This is a hard message for modern people, especially living in our materialistic culture, because there are so many other rubrics of success and accomplishment in our world. And if our identity is not in the one who is leading us, Jesus Christ, we're going to falter, we're going to fall. We're not going to last as disciples. Possessions, sometimes family, can cause our hearts to trust in what we have or our own identity instead of Jesus, what we have, our accomplishments, our successes. You know, the point is not necessarily to liquidate all of our assets. I don't think that's what Jesus was getting at. But the idea is disencumberment, not to be so weighed down And encumbered with the things of this world, whether it's property or wealth, whatever it is, that we can't be ready for the demands of discipleship, for the demands of following Jesus. Are you free this morning from those kinds of restraints and encumberments? Have you weighed out in your heart where your love really lies? And are you able to follow Jesus wherever he leads on the road of discipleship? Because the journey at times is perilous, and at times it does require the abandonment of everything that holds us back. And Finally, Luke sums up this section with this statement. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste... How shall its saltiness be restored? It's of no use either to the soil or for the manure pile. It's thrown away. He who has ears, let him hear. Salt, we know salt was used as a preservative, but it was also sometimes put into the soil to preserve the soil, preserve vegetables. And Jesus is saying that in the same way the uselessness of salt that has lost its saltiness is someone who has embarked on the journey of discipleship without counting the cost. The tough words. The same level of uselessness. I recently bought some sea salt. You know, now it's popular to buy the salt that goes, you know, that you twist and turn. My wife likes the Himalayan salt, the pink Himalayan salt, and I picked up some sea salt. And I remember I made dinner about a month ago, and it just, the flavor wasn't there. I didn't know what it was. And a few weeks later, I realized that the salt had lost all saltiness. It just, I don't know what happened. It was, they were selling it like that. I was furious. (laughs) I mean, I just, I, I mean, it was like snow. My plate, and it had no saltiness. I was, you know, I don't know where it's at now. I think I threw it away or put it back in the cupboard somewhere. I certainly don't use it. But it's useless to me. It's useless. Salt with no saltiness. It's this illustration, this idea. So many have proclaimed the name of Christ, right? But aren't willing to pay the cost of discipleship because they don't know what it really requires. Let us this morning, each, each one of us here, consider the cost of discipleship And let each one of us renounce everything that holds us back from following Jesus. Let's pray.